Good morning. How are you? As I said yesterday, how are the rest of you, right? <laughs> that's one of the fun things I get to do. I don't get to do a whole lot of things that are fun, but that's one. And, uh, but it is a great joy to be here. I had the great joy of meeting uh, quite a number of you yesterday, and Allison did as well. And I think Allison's right over here. If you haven't met her yet, um, you should. A uh, great friend and uh, partner in ministry, and we've been working alongside each other for upwards to 20 years now, and it's been uh, a great joy to serve alongside of her, um, and I appreciate that very, very much. So I want to just kind of dive into the text. You can see the title of the message and the two passages we're going to cover. Honestly, um, as I heard the worship time this morning, I thought, thank you. I thought very much that, well, I don't even need to do the first part of my message because he just did it. If you really understand what he said and get the history of it and the texts of Scripture that are behind it, you got Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23 in, in what was just shared and what we sang. And when you think about the history piece, it's, it's kind of intriguing to me, I'm kind of a history buff and uh, it's been part of my educational process and love that stuff, so to speak, you know. But it's been very interesting to me that God is up to something. He's been up to something for all of these years. Uh, throughout the you know, last over 2,000 years, he's never wavered a moment from it. And right in the middle of all the challenges that you and I face, um, he's not changed a bit. He doesn't. He doesn't waver. We do, you know. Uh, that whole thing of joy coming in the morning, as we sang a few moments ago, and all of that. Well, the night's not always joyful. <laughs> you know, the night before that joy coming in the morning uh, piece, you know, is, is, can be tough. Uh, it is for me at times. And so I praise God for that. And I want to just kind of open up this text to you. I actually have one thing I want to point out in Colossians 1. I will survey the text with you leading up to that one thing. And it's, it's, a, it's an essential, I think. I don't want you to miss it. So I'm pointing it out now. At that juncture, I will call it a warning because in the text, that's what it is. God is warning us about something. He's trying to get our attention, and we need to listen to it. So this, the, the amazing nature of who Christ is is pictured in these verses. We'll read some of them together. They'll be up on the screen. But if you have a copy of God's Word and you want to open to the text in Colossians chapter 1, that's where we'll begin. And just one note, at the end of the message, uh, I'm going to turn this to Hebrews 12. It's actually as an example, an application of Colossians 1. But it stands alone in its own, on its own. It has an amazing message inside of it. And this warning from Colossians 1 is actually built out in Hebrews chapter 12. So it's, it's basically saying, how do you pay attention to the warning in chapter 1 of Colossians? How do you actually do that warning, apply that warning in your life, and it gives steps of action to take? They're functional steps. You and I can take them. I'm going to spend a bit of time on that text with you this morning and kind of survey this early part in Colossians. But before we open God's Word, would you pray with me? Father, um, 
Thank you for your faithfulness. Oh, we are not. We waver. We have our own challenges, full of fears at times. Sometimes we're so right we can't be wrong. It just demonstrates our sinfulness. demonstrates the wickedness of our heart. Uh, you say in your word that the heart, who can know it? We, we can't even know it. It's unwieldy. It's untrustful. We, we must trust you and you alone, not our heart. God, we are in trouble if we pay attention and follow it. We need to pay attention and understand it so we can know how you make us more like Christ because as Bo prayed a few moments ago, that is what we are here for, to become more like you. Lord Jesus, you called us to follow you no matter what was going on for Peter and, and John, the Gospel of John. It was, it was John himself. No matter what you're doing in that other person's life, we are to follow you. So instruct us, inspire us, empower us, inform us, grant us the grace of understanding your word and specifically how to apply it. I pray in the strong name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So two subjects in this passage of Scripture in Colossians chapter 1. The first is preeminence and the second is purpose. The preeminence of Christ, we'll talk about that. Then we'll talk about why he's here, why he came, what was his purpose. So look at me with me, if you will, in uh, uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. I'll read these few verses and then I'll comment on them. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Underline that. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn of all from the dead. He is... Uh, so, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Jesus is God in visible form. We see that in this text. Jesus is never seen before. God never seen before. Now seen and thus knowable. We have the opportunity to know God through Jesus. Jesus makes God understandable to us. Without him, we would be in trouble. He's our creator. He's the one in Genesis that spoke things into existence. Second person of the Trinity. He's the one. He's the one who created everything in this world and created all of it for himself. He is preeminent. Which means, here's the application for you and me, he created me for him. I was not created for me. And I was not created for you. I was not even created for life or what my expression in life is. You and I were created for him, period. And when you, when you take that and say, wow, that puts him up, that puts him in a preeminent state, you start understanding what this text is about. Now, when you start applying it to being the church, he's the head of the church, I mean, I get the role of leaders. I've been in pastoral ministry all my adult life. I love the church, and I love leadership inside the church. I was my last pastorate. I actually oversaw all the leadership training of our people and loved doing it. It was fun. 
Uh, it was insightful. People grew. It was just amazing when you started seeing those things. But I have to remember, I'm not the head. I'm not the head. Elders aren't the head. You're not the head. There's one head, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's preeminent over everything. And when we remember that, membership is important in the life of the church. Leadership is important in the life of the church. But membership nor leadership gives you the ability to take over the head spot because that's only for him. He is preeminent. He's preeminent in who we are, in the body of Jesus Christ. And when we make it about ourselves, we replace him as head in the body. Be careful. Now, the purpose of Jesus. Look at this in verse 19 and uh, 20. For it was the Father's good pleasure. Isn't that interesting language? For all the fullness to dwell in Him, which means everything it meant to be God was dwelling inside of Jesus Christ. And through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, whether things on earth, which is where we are, right, in our experience, or things in heaven, we're not there yet, one day we will be, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus' purpose was to reconcile. That was his purpose. He came into this world to reconcile. To reconcile you to God, to reconcile me to God, to reconcile you to me and me to you. It's, and it's through one agency, it's through one means, last part of the passage, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now I want you to think about it, because a lot of times what, how we interpret this text is I became a Christian through the blood of Jesus Christ, cleansing me from my sin, which is utterly true. I became a Christian because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses cleanses me from my sin. But when I get in conflict with my friend, I have a different means by which I resolve that conflict other than the blood of his cross, which is not what this text says. This text says that all reconciliation in heaven and earth, in you and me relationally, inside me as I look and think about my own heart, as I think about my own life, organizational conflict, political conflict, cultural conflict, all of it is reconciled through the blood of his cross. There's no other means for reconciliation but one, and it's him, and it's his work on the cross. It's what he's done. That's what this is saying. And his purpose was to, for us to understand that reconciliation of anything, of any relationship, of any person, occurs through the sacrificial offering of Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel knows no limits. There's no boundaries to it. And it needs to be applied, and it needs to be applied personally without any other means coming into play. There isn't any. And it's the reason the message of biblical peacemaking for us, the message of biblical peacemaking is Jesus. It's his cross. It's his blood. It's not just getting me out of hell into heaven it's not just so that I can have peace so I know I'm okay, I'll die one day and go to be with Jesus. All that's true, <laughs> but that's not the whole purpose. The whole purpose is any kind of breakage, any kind of dysfunction, any kind of challenge that you and I have is going to be resolved through the very same means that God used to resolve his conflict with us 
and ours with him. And it's called the gospel. So now I want you to notice this word now in this next text. The now for you and me. Here's verse 21. For although you were previously alienated and hostile in attitude, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. First, first thing, it's now. It's not later, it's now. Reconciliation is possible now. The work of reconciliation in my life, in my heart, is now. It's not something to wait for, it's something to act on. The power of that is real, and it's now. He, he changed our story. I mean, we were alienated and hostile. We were in trouble. We were done. I mean, the power of that was unbelievable, but no longer are we alienated, no longer are we hostile, no longer are we just characterized by evil deeds. Now we're actually freed to live in righteousness. This whole thing, the last text, part of this verse, to present you before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. I end up going, are you ready for that? How holy are you? <laughs> I'm in trouble. I don't know about you. Beyond reproach? Are you kidding me? Who's beyond reproach? Anyone want to stand up and say, I am, way to go, you know? <laughs> you know, test it. You'll see. I mean, we would all fail the test. There's not one of us who won't. That's why the reconciliation power and the purpose of Jesus coming into this world to reconcile is a now thing. That's what the, the, Paul is saying to us. Currently, it's right now, he's up to doing something with us. But here's the warning. A warning not to miss. 23. If indeed, he's continuing now from what he just said. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, am made a minister. Now, the conditional part of this part text, and then the first part of it, if indeed you continue in the faith, I'll allow your leaders here, your pastors here, to, to take you down through that, what that means. I'm not going to give attention to that. I want you to notice the second piece of it, though. Firmly established and steadfast and not shifting from the gospel. Here's the warning. Be careful. It is easy in our world to find a hundred different ways to resolve things, to reconcile problems. There's a lot of sources out there. Now, none of them will compare to the gospel because it's the only one that actually brings to us transformation before God, eternal life in God. It's the only one. It's the only one who can actually do something and make a difference. And, and what he's saying is be careful because as was true for the Colossians and many in Galatia and other parts in that first century, first time, uh, you know, at, right after Jesus had lived on earth, people were proclaiming a different way to move forward. And he's saying be careful, don't shift from the gospel. 
The shifting from the gospel is the warning. He's saying, be careful, don't do that. Make sure that you're walking inside the gospel. I mean, it's not a hard concept. Shifting is an easy concept to understand. I just move from here to here, and it doesn't have to be far. I just move away from. I'm not staying primarily focused on the one focus, the gospel, that Jesus is what we just read. He is the reconciler. And he reconciled all things to himself. He's preeminent in it, and his purpose is for you and I to experience that reconciliation. But listen, if we shift away from the gospel, we will lose hope. And how many times have I had Christians tell me, in churches just like yours, I don't have hope of this happening. How did they shift away from the hope of the gospel? Notice it in the text. It's the hope of the gospel he's saying not to shift away from. The application of the gospel will allow that hope to continue to be understood and lived in and empowered. But the shifting away from the hope, I just don't believe it's enough. I've had Christians say that. Have you ever thought it? I'm not sure it's enough. We don't just need Jesus. We don't just need the gospel. We don't just need the pathway of the gospel. We need something else. And we shift away from the very message that God has given us as the preeminent message of who Jesus Christ is and why He came into this world. And we lose when we do that. We will become hopeless. We will end up believing this can't be healed. And in church conflict, and we see it all the time, people wonder, will this ever get over? Will we ever get past this? And I go, yes. The answer is yes. But you don't get there by fighting it out or finding out who's right. You don't get there by those means. Now, I'm not saying the discussion shouldn't happen, and I'm not saying that there's not places where people are right and wrong. What I am saying is understand those things through the lens of the gospel so that you come to a place to where you own those things that are true and you own those things that are right and holy, and you walk away from those things that are not you, you, you turn to repent. You, you understand what's going on inside your own heart in the middle of all of that. So that now what God is up to in your life and what Christ has come into this world to actually produce is possible for you instead of it being lost to you. And honestly, I get very concerned that, that it's getting lost to us in the body of Jesus Christ today. I get concerned. And this text calls us back to that. I mean, it's a text to really think about and to understand and to apply. But the application, we lose, we lose the power of the application. So now I want, to, I want to flip over to Hebrews 12, and I want to talk about application. Because in Hebrews 12, the writer of Hebrews is giving us steps of action to take. I want you to understand some of those steps of action. But prior to that, understand this is an exhortation from God's Word. It's an essential, that's what an exhortation is. God is not giving it as a good idea. Biblical peacemaking is not a good idea. Biblical peacemaking is a path to commit oneself to and to follow day in and day out. And it's got a lot of bandwidth. If you were here yesterday, you, you heard a lot of bandwidth. And we didn't even cover, quite frankly, it takes twice as much time. I know I've got a lot of words and take a long time to say something. <laughs> I get that. You know, but we did six hours yesterday. 
And we have a 12-hour version of it, and that 12-hour version actually allows us to communicate everything inside of it. There's stuff we didn't talk about yesterday that's important in biblical peacemaking. Now, what we did talk about yesterday are essentials for it. You miss those essentials, all those other things won't work. They don't help. The foundation is what we talked about yesterday. Everything else is built upon that foundation. So if you haven't had a chance to, to take a listen to that, I hope that you will and, and discover. But here comes this, this amazing text. And it actually, that warning from Colossians 1 to not shift away from the gospel, this is how. If you ever wonder, you know, you get told by preachers all the time, don't do, don't do, don't do, right? <laughs> you get told by teachers all the time, you know, here's what you need to believe. And you go, How? Here's how. And this is really clear. I don't think this is going to be misunderstood, honestly. So, so let's take a look. So Hebrews, uh, here it is in 12, beginning in verse 14. Now, notice that I'm highlighting the word pursue, intentional, intentionally going after. And I'm not just going after something. I'm going after peace, holiness, and grace, and I'm intentionally doing it. So, pursue peace with all people. This is ESV, by the way. Uh, I'll, I'll give you some other words for this in a moment. Pursue peace with all people and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, that word holiness in the New American Standard Version is translated sanctification. Without the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. It, it, both words are actually meaning that we are experiencing God's holiness in our current experience, in our life. And I am to pursue that. I'm to pursue peace with you, no matter who you are, all people. And I'm to pursue holiness or sanctification. My holiness and sanctification? Yes. Your holiness and sanctification? Yes. You know what we find? Most people who are trying to resolve conflict are trying to get to a place of peace, and they don't understand they have to pursue two, not one. They pursue peace and holiness and sanctification. Are you becoming more like Christ through that conflict? If you are, you're on the right path. If you're not, you're missing the path. Is the person that is your opponent right now, the person you don't like much right now, is that person, are you pursuing their sanctification? So intentionally going after that person in order for them to become more like Christ? Not to prove them wrong. Not to expose them. I mean, call out what they need to call out and repent of. I mean, that's how we get to peace with God, right? That's how we become more like Christ. We change. We need to change. There's not one of us who doesn't need to change. And two people in conflict sit down and look at each other and know, each one knowing about the other and the other knowing about themselves, that they need to change and they're looking for how. Now they've got a common path that they're on. So this pursuit needs to be about peace, the peace of God, by the way. I don't believe this means cessation of war, this word peace. It means the character of God. He is the God of peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He wants the character of what peace is to be true in me and to be true relationally between me and you. 
And when we experience His character that way, and we experience becoming more like Christ, not just winning. I mean, if you're in the conflict to win, I would say good luck. (laughs) You're going to need it. But if you're in the conflict in order to become more like Christ, now you understand this, this verse, pursue peace. You know what that word pursue is? It's an active word. It's, it's a word that means actually go after. It, it's a word that means I'm looking, I'm focused on this. I'm not giving up on this. Pursue. It's translated this way 15 times in the New Testament. Could be translated strive for. One translation says strive for peace and sanctification. Okay, strive for. I like that. It's an energy word. Etymology-wise, it is the word run, not the word walk. You look at it all the way back at how this word began, it was the word run. And, you, you, you know, run means you go fast, right? It means you pick up your legs. You're actually flying through the air at times. One foot's not always on the ground. There are times when you're flying. I mean, your energy, it's, it's an intent word. I'm headed there, and I'm headed there as fast as I can get there. I'm running. That's what this word is. But you know what? This word is translated 31 times, two times more than strive for, used positively like pursue, negatively. Same Greek construction. It's translated negative. And it's a word that it means intentionally go after someone, but you're not going after peace, and you're not going after sanctification. You know what that word is? It's used 31 times in the New Testament. Persecute. Same word. They persecuted me, they will persecute me. You. If you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, you're a blessed person, right? (laughs) Persecute. Persecute. 31 times. Very same term as translated pursue here. Now, what's what's the importance of that? He means it. (laughs) He means for you to go after that person in peace and go after sanctification. And I don't mean go after by way of force. You can't force. You should never force. Ask the person if they're willing. If they are, you've got opportunity. Prepare. Ask the person if they're ready. If they're not ready, help them get ready. Allow them to get ready. It's okay. God does that with us, doesn't he? So many times he waits so long, it seems to us. For him, time's not exactly a barrier. (laughs) Does this make sense to you? He's he's saying intentionally go after these things. Understand I've got something for you. And, And look at the next verse, verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Now pause right there. We'll get to the last part of it here in a minute. It'll be the final part of my message to you. See to it. That no one falls short of the grace of God. There's the intent of that pursuit. God's grace happened in that person's life. I'm not there just to condemn them or to expose them. That's not my job. You know, our enemy is a condemner. He's an accuser of the brethren. Now, if you have a problem with me, tell me what it is. Yesterday I say, this, you know, I put this my fist above my head and I said, do you see it? You said, yes. I said, I don't. I go, is it there? Yep. I go, I don't think so. I can't see it. 
where is it? It's above your head. I go, no, it's not. <laughs> I mean, if you know something about me that I need to know that it would help me to get peace with God and peace with you and sanctification, help me understand what it is. Help me understand what it is. Bring it into view. You don't have to accuse me. You don't have to become like the enemy. You don't have to become my enemy. You are not enemies of one another. You're not. We don't struggle against flesh and blood. We struggle against principalities and powers. The enemy, he's your enemy. You're not enemies of each other. You're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And if you'll understand that, you've got opportunity. And he's, make, he's saying, see to it that person experiences grace. And I can't tell you how many people I've had over the years to say to me, that's too soft. The grace of God is too soft. The grace of God transforms us. Definitionally, it provides something we cannot do. I mean, you're stuck in your conflict because you can't. And the gospel comes in as the hope of how you can. And the fuel of it is His grace and peace and growing to be like Christ, sanctification. And what does it mean that I grow to be like Christ? You get to discover it right in the middle of the cauldron of the conflict. Conflict is a friend. Conflict is a gift. You shouldn't run away from it, and I'm a great escaper. My, that's what my wife calls me. I, I'm escaping with the best of them. I run fast away from, you know. But I need to press into. That's what this text is saying, isn't it? You know what that word to it is? It's the word overseer elders are overseers same term and it's like God is saying you have this conflict in your life and with this other person here it is you understand what it's about that's why you're upset I mean when we talk to people and we say tell us what's going on they can now sometimes a person says I'm kind of deep here you know I'm, I'm confused I'm not sure exactly what's going on you know help me see it okay but we go, oh, I don't like that person right now because. Or I feel hurt. And hurt's one of, the mo one of the most common and major motivations of why conflict stays unresolved. Is hurt. And the power of hurt needs to be understood. We are hurting. And people are hurting. And we need to know how to have compassion in that setting and get to healing. James 5 actually instructs that the whole reason why we have the trials and the challenges in our life is to get to healing. It's the path to healing. Conflict is actually good. <laughs> I hate conflict. <laughs> I hate it. When it comes my way, I don't like it. I stress. And it's good. Why? Because God gives me the opportunity to make sure I oversee the conflict to get to God's grace. Grace is what you need in that moment. Run there. Pursue that. Make sure grace happens in that other person's life. And watch what God does. He totally changes it. Now why? So that no one comes short of the grace of God. Now go to the next slide. Because here's, here's the next part of this text. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Now, 
just prior to this, he's described this by the word bitterness. Do you know that word? The word bitterness in the scripture is a very specific term. It's got Old Testament roots. People of, uh, of the children of Israel walk through the wilderness, right, the desert, and they're looking for plants, and plants that are fibrous and full of liquid. And there was one that was very fibrous, and it had all kinds of liquid in it. But there was one that if they went to that plant and they cut it open, the liquid just gush out. And they, if they captured that and then drank it, it made them sick. That liquid literally would attach to every fiber of their body, just as it did inside the plant. And it made them sick, and they could not get well. There was no remedy for it. The only thing that sickness would not do is kill you. So it destined you to be in this awful place inside yourself, sour and sick and unable to get well. That plant in English was called wormwood. You get it, right? It destroys the inside of the wood. The wormwood, it just rots. It just, you become weak. And, and, and what the writer of Hebrews is saying is don't go there. That is the word bitterness. It's the same word. Bitterness will kill you. It will sour you. It will ruin you. And the reason it ruins you has a lot of bandwidth, and I don't have time to talk about that. I just want to talk about this one part. The price you don't want to pay. He found no place for repentance. When I get to heaven, I'm going to look up whoever wrote the book of Hebrews because I'm not so sure who did. But I'm going to look him up and I'm going to say, why did you choose Esau? I don't get it. I don't think I'm like Esau at all. It's hard for me to identify with Esau. Why did you choose Esau as the example of this? Why didn't you choose Jacob or somebody else that was more like me, somebody I would associate with, and I don't think I'm ruddy and red and all this, and, you know, Jacob had to prostrate himself, you know, because of the fear of God as opposed to the fear of Esau. Esau would have slayed him, and he could have. He literally put himself into his hands. That was the day after he had that dream where he was touched in the hip and, you know, all of that, you know. That story is beautiful. But here comes Esau. Why? Why is he using Esau? But hear me now. There was a desire in his heart. Look at this. When he was rejected, though he sought it with tears, there was a sincerity inside of him that he would get to the place to where he could find repentance, actually become different, and he could not find it. The ultimate goal of bitterness is the inability to repent of one's own sin. When bitterness roots in your life, when it finally takes its position in your life and it's controlling you, you no longer have the ability to confess and repent of your own sin. Can you imagine that? Devastating. Devastating. Repent. Bitterness is something that steals from us, a gift from God. Repentance is a gift. I don't repent because I'm better than you. The bigger man, as some people say. I hate that phrase, quite frankly. I hate that phrase. It makes it about me. Instead of God changing my heart, 
turning me from this selfish, focused, desiring person who wants, and I have all kinds of wants, and those desires are the, are the source of my conflicts, according to James 4. And here's this power of this want stealing from me the very thing that I need. I need to actually turn from. I need to give up. I need to sacrifice it. I need to, instead of winning the battle, I need to lose it. Why not lose the battle? Why not lose the, the argument? To get to repentance, to get to holiness, to get to godliness, to get to what God's up to, to get to peace. Why not? That's 1 Corinthians 6, by the way. The power of it is amazing to us. And yet, re repentance will steal it from I mean, I'm sorry, bitterness will steal it from you. Don't get on the road to bitterness. Last thing for me on this, and I'll say my last thing and pray and we'll be done, but um, you know what the first step toward bitterness is? first step toward bitterness is unforgiveness. When I am unforgiving toward another person, I hold them guilty and they will never get out of my judgment of them. They are guilty. And they may be guilty even when the judgment is right. I hold them there, and I don't pursue into forgiveness. Forgiveness is a gift from Jesus. It is purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is something He calls us into. It. He says, forgive the way you've been forgiven. As we noted yesterday, you know, Jesus, right after the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, ends up saying, if you forgive, the Heavenly Father will forgive you. If you do not forgive, the Heavenly Father will not forgive you. We need to pay attention. Unforgiveness will take you down the path toward bitterness. That's why we say, pursue this. Understand that the gospel is your friend. The gospel has hope in it. You can actually change, and this other person can change. And what God is up to in all of this can, can, take, on a different, can take on a different place in our lives. It can. The resolution of it can be there. Uh, the final slide I have for you is a summary statement, and it reads, The ultimate enemy of the cross... In the life of a Christian is the inability to repent. Repentance should be what we need to be after. It should be what we are after. Committed to. Understanding of. What is it he's up to inside of my life? And what do I need to turn from? Not just what the blame the other person. I get it that there's problems. You know? I get in conflict a lot, quite frankly. And when I get in conflict, I want to know where the other person stands. And I, but I, and I ask. And I seek to understand why in order to apply the gospel and to bring hope to that person in me to resolve. Because there's nothing unresolvable. There's nothing unresolvable. Read Colossians 1. In heaven and on earth, nothing. If we apply the gospel. So Lord, um, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for the time to open your word. Thank you for the time to worship through music. Um, God, my prayer is that you take Colossians 1, Hebrews 12, and just make it real to us. Not only known and believed, we commonly know and believe these things, but applied. May I do that. May we do that.
I pray in the strong name of Christ our Lord. Amen.